And, you know, I'm just willing to say, like, I'm gay or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm willing to say, okay, you know, I'm not going to uphold, like, that homosexuality is, like, just healthy and great and, you know, positive and everybody's got to embrace it. Because, you know, it's kind of a miserable sexual subculture in which people are strangely antisocial. Like, oh, the Stalinist line on homosexuality, that it's like narcissistic and antisocial. And, you know, there's a kernel of truth to it. Of course there is. There is. Right. And so it's not like, you know, it's not like I'm going to say, oh, well, you know, it's good. I'm just going to say should should people like attack other people in civil society and should the state arrest and abuse people on the basis of their deviant sexuality in other words i'm not going to say it's not deviant right but i would just it's say as a deviant and maybe it is antisocial and maybe i did fail in my social responsibility to not be heterosexual and have children yeah. i mean fuck. okay I mean, yeah, like, okay, maybe you did, and and maybe. I. Yeah, I'm maybe. just willing to admit. I just I want to tell you as a divorced to it. I'm not as, as a divorced heterosexual man. Uh -huh. I I want to tell you. You want to take you want to take a walk on the gay side now, Doug? No, no, no. <laughs> I, I, I no, I thought about might that. Might be happier. And, uh, no, you yeah, might be happier. I might. I might be. I might fucking be happier. But. <laughs> Welcome, uh, Sublation Media viewers. Uh, it is the Catrone Zone. I'm introducing it, but the, the real star here is, of course, Chris Catrone. Chris, <laughs> congratulations. Your your book uh, is out today. We're recording on June 7th, but it this will be going up on Friday. People who pre-ordered, the book will be shipped soon. People who have not ordered yet should go to the link in the description and order. Uh, this is the death of the millennial left interventions 2006 to 2022. 20, uh, um, you have another book uh, or two coming out uh, probably either this year or next. Right. Um, and I'm really glad to start making you into a regular YouTuber. It's it's a fall. You are falling from your perch into the YouTube universe. But I'm that. glad you're here. <laughs> uh -huh. But um, yeah, so before I pressed record, I was uh, talking to you about um, how I have become sometimes frustrated with people, uh, even people who support me on Patreon or people who watch regularly on the YouTube channel, at their reaction to the content, you know, the, the things I've been saying, um, either on Twitter or uh, in podcasts or in Critical Cuts videos. Mm -hmm. um, the The way in which people want to reject the notion I think that they want to reject the notion that anything has changed. There's a certain tendency to cling to an older critique of corporate media as opposed to taking in the fact that we're dealing with some sort of hybrid of the corporate world and the state. Um, and, and Part of that obviously is the problem with Marxism, meaning quote-unquote Marxism, right? So mm -hmm. quote-unquote Marxism you have to find like a material economic basis for everything. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's not really how it works. In other words, there is a certain autonomy of politics. You know, the problem of capitalism is much more of a general condition. And it's a condition for both economics and politics. So it's not like there, you know, the material condition for the economic system 
it's not like the economic system is that material condition. It isn't. Right. Um, and so, you know, I always like to say that there's a more general, you know, critique of society and economics and politics are just phenomenal forms of that contradiction, social contradiction, what people used to say, social contradiction. I mean, there are so many layers to this, Doug. So like class interest, people think that class interest is like the real thing as opposed to a phenomenal form of a social contradiction. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Marx couldn't have been more clear about this. And yet, you know, people read what they want to read into things. They hear what they want to hear. They believe what they want to believe. And they understand what they want to understand. In other words, it's hard to really challenge people on that basis. And so I think that, like, you know, when I think that there was this kind of complacent idea on the left, maybe going back to the 1930s, that, like, there's vested economic interests in politics as practiced. And so it's like corporate control of the state. And it's like, well, yeah, I guess so. But what about the state's control of the corporations? And what about, you know, like, so in other words, it it sort of goes back and forth between the political and the economic realm. Um, And so people are looking for, um, I think that Todd McGowan, I don't know if he said this on one of your podcasts, he said something like the left doesn't need an enemy. Like the right needs an enemy, the left doesn't really need an enemy. And I thought that's a really interesting observation because actually that's one of the problems with the left is that it's always looking for an enemy or the enemy. And it's kind of like, well, but no, we're out to change society. And in a sense, there are many enemies. And in another sense, there are no enemies, you know? Um, And so this whole like Carl Schmitt kind of friend and foe, enemy friend kind of thing, Mm-hmm. It's just like really awful. I mean, you know, the, he supported fascism for a reason. You know, <laughs> that's just not the way Marxism approaches socialism. You right. know, and so we're interested in transforming society in the interests of everyone, really, whether they know it or not. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and obviously the point is for them to know it. Right. It's not like to do it behind their back or something, you know. Um, it's not going to be like some kind of a swindle, but it's also not going to be about like defeating the enemy, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's just a long history of this, you know, like 1930s Stalinism, popular front era, like which side are you on comrade? Mm-hmm. And then later we get like the Maoist cultural revolution kind of thing, you know, which has its roots in the thirties that the, the enemy is in your head, you know? Like mm-hmm. the self-criticism, like the inner bourgeois or something is the enemy that has to be destroyed. Very culty kind of. Uh, yeah, thinking. but it was a mass movement. You know, millions know. of people participated in this. And there are varieties of this. Like, you know, your ego is your enemy. You know, the mm-hmm. ego death stuff, the Lacanian stuff. And it's just like, you know, an ideology, bourgeois ideology is like the false consciousness. It's like Scientology. Like, what is it? the aliens that take over the brain yeah right and yeah you have yeah to, like go through stages of getting rid of the the alien that's controlling you mm-hmm. and it's like uh no sorry <laughs> that's not what we're doing here you know do you do you, do you remember the british uh literary movement called the angry young men uh-huh it, um one of them was a guy named he got lumped in this guy named colin wilson uh-huh. And he started out writing The Outsider and kind of doing this analysis of The Outsider in Western thought. And he ended up like writing these conspiracy books about how there were alien forces encircling the earth, keeping us 
repressed and you know like some sort of uh either extra dimensional or or alien that entity. would be fucking awesome wouldn't it <laughs> yeah but the problem is the miserable problem is that it's that you know it's much more prosaic you know which is that you know we just have to work through you know right. our our kind of social reality um it's just it's 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 strange so anyway like getting back to it like you know corporate media it's like well what the hell is that and who is that and you know the right wing has its own version of that which is like oh the corporate media is like liberal or like the media is liberal bias or this kind of thing mm -hmm. and then they try to trace it to like i don't know it's academia is responsible for the bias of the media it's training people and all this crypto leftism you know and again everybody's looking for an enemy and it's like, it makes sense at a phenomenal level. All these things are plausible. And maybe the enemy is like the, the reptilians in the hollow earth or something, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, they were like looking for the enemy. And it's kind of like, well, wait, what if, you know, we're engaged in a collective process of social transformation? And, you know, it is kind of murky. And we are, we are part of the problem we're trying to transform but also we're the only potential solution to that problem. And it's not about like negating ourselves in some kind of profound way. I mean, you know, for some reason, when I was getting ready to talk to you today, Doug, um, you know, I was thinking of a student that I had, a, an African-American student, a black student at the Art Institute, who was a graduate student and was kind of African-American, meaning he was partially African descent, partially African-American descent. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was talking to his, his kind of mentor figures, other black professors, about how excited he was in my class learning about Marxism. And they were like, well, Marxism is white settler colonial discourse. Mm. Right. And they consider themselves leftists. They're not like cultural nationalists, like, you know, people. Like, when did this happen? This year? A few years ago, a few years ago, yeah. right around the time of uh, COVID. So I think it was right. the fall before COVID. Marx is, well, I mean, that's not a, that's a, not a new. It's not a new thought. idea, but no. at all. Right. And, and, and I'm just thinking, okay, so then what, like this kid who is excited by the ideas that, you know, I'm teaching, right. But reading, you know, he's reading it for himself. Like, you know, like obviously it takes many more hours to read the readings that I have them read than to listen to me in a lecture in court mm -hmm. in the, in the classroom or engage in dialogue with me. And, you know, it was kind of like, oh, well, don't, you know, don't let yourself be taken over by this white settler colonial discourse, meaning that there's like a material interest in white people's, you know, like Chris Catron's a Marxist because he's a white settler, don't you know? And it's mm -hmm. like, holy shit, man, you know, and and it's kind of like, so again, what would that material interest be for oh, I don't want to like off myself Im immediately as like, a you know, an invader on on someone else's land and as you know the the recipient of the benef benefits of slave economy you know um that that you know my existence you know my existence the fact that my parents and grandparents like lived and were able to biologically reproduce i mean it's really like that my very existence is evidence and i talk about this in the book in the death of the lonely left, it's in Republicans and Riots. It's in that article. Mm -hmm. um, that's the climax of the Black Question section of the book. And, uh, you know, that, that you know, and people have talked about this, like John McWhorter has talked about this, about like, 
you know, the wokeness as a new religion and that's original sin. You can never be purged of original sin. So you have to spend your entire life, you know, paying penance for it. Um, but really, you know, your existence is an outrage against the generations of oppressed and exploited and exterminated genocided people. And, um, you know, uh, I guess that's true. Like my existence is like, due in some way to wiping out the Native Americans, enslaving Africans and all these things, um, you know, but, you know, what, what, we're not going to undo that history, right? So, yeah, I have a little anecdote. I don't know if I told you this before, but um, when my, my grandfather was a uh, pilot in World War II mm -hmm. and uh, he never saw combat because okay. after he got trained he was about to be deployed when they dropped the bomb uh -huh. in hiroshima and nagasaki uh -huh. and my uh aunt and uncle uh raised their family in oak ridge tennessee uh -huh. and and i recall being visiting them during a like a i don't know like the 40th year anniversary of the of the city or something because it was built oak ridge was built to help develop the nuclear bomb i see i see yeah yeah okay uh, right, right. Uh, right and this so project yeah stuff, it was right. sister to uh, los alamos and um so i visited them and they and the, the story i was told by my aunt and uncle was i should be grateful for the nuclear bomb because if it hadn't been dropped there's a good chance my grandfather wouldn't have survived the war and none of us wouldn't have been here. born right <laughs> and right. and um and then so that in their mind justified it, you know like it was necessary to to create uh, peace and to bring japan to be you know to surrender um all that did for me was make me think uh, oh man i'm a i'm the product of this atrocity i'm you know i i I mean, oh, my existence to this. Address. Right. So that's bottomless. Right. So in other words, yeah, like, right. obviously that has nothing to do with Marxism. But, you know, I always like to say, and it makes people angry. Mm. Mao celebrated the nuking of Japan. Mm -hmm. Right. It's just a fact. Right. Um, Stalin and Mao were happy that the U.S. nuked Japan. They celebrated they did like actually celebrated the communists in china because why wouldn't they i mean japan had totally raped china in a profound way why would they not have celebrated the nuking of japan now that doesn't mean that they were exactly right to do that right because obviously like socialists would not be in favor of nuclear weapons and their use um so you know but again the idea being you know that it was more like a forward-looking struggle right rather than a kind of, you know, um, guilt kind of politics mm -hmm. or something. And, you know, it, again, just to recall that now, and that I'm not trying to whitewash the fact mm -hmm. that um, the nuking of Japan might've been a war crime, might've been a war crime. Um, you know, I'm not willing to just say it was a war crime. It might've been, it might not have been, but anyway, it's done. It's happened. Right. <laughs> and so, the thing is, what are we going to do now, right? The world that was created through all sorts of atrocities and oppression and exploitation, that is our world. Where are we taking it now? What was all that suffering for? 
Mm-hmm. And again, that's that's really the theme of the Republicans and riots is that, you know, are we going to be morbid about it? Are we going to negate our own life, which happens on both sides? So it's not like, OK, only white people are guilty for their existence. But I think the Afro pessimism and the black nihilism also has something of this, mm-hmm. you know, which is the kind of like, you know, just pessimism about one's own existence and the idea that one's existence is like a living heritage of an atrocity, slavery. Mm-hmm. Rather than, you know, fuck that we're fighting now, right? We're struggling now for freedom. And, you know, you know, as Thomas Jefferson said, the world belongs to the living. You know, as Franz Fanon said, you know, I am not the slave of the enslavement of my ancestors. Right. right. And so, but, you know, we're obviously living in a very pessimistic time. And that's one of the points is that a lot of the left is actually expressing a right wing ideology and right wing ideology is by its very nature, pessimistic, Mm -hmm. pessimistic about possibilities for society, for humanity. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it does seem like if you say, well, what matters is the struggle for socialism, that just sounds like a Pollyanna-ish on the, you know, like, oh, well, you know, or some kind of whitewash or some kind of expression of privilege. Like, oh, it's all well and good. You know, that Chris Catrone wants to emphasize the struggle for socialism, but what about harm reduction right now? Right. And it's like, mm-hmm. um, you know, actually we're not in a position to do much about that right now. Not to say that there shouldn't be something done, mm-hmm. but are we in the position to do that or are we only in the position of being held hostage by capitalist politics in the name of a harm reduction that isn't really going to happen anyway? Right. 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 And, and that's going to sound very pessimistic. And it's like, you know, obviously some harms can be averted. Some harms can be stopped, but also those involve other harms, right? So an understanding of capitalism is that it's contradictory. Um, meaning that, you know, uh, it's an old Marxist idea. It's like Rosa Luxemburg's idea, you know, but others, you know, Kautsky, Lenin, Trotsky, you know, the reforms uh, that are achieved actually make capitalism worse. And they produce other kinds of suffering. And again, maybe not immediately, but long term. Right. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, this idea that we're going to deal with the, uh, you know, the immediacy of like, you know, that's actually what keeps capitalism going. Um, and so, you know, there is a kind of historical view that we have to keep in mind. And this is a moment for that. You know, like one of the points of me publishing these books at this point mm-hmm. is to say this is a moment of taking a pause and looking back and reflecting and saying, okay, you know, where have we been? Where have we come from? Where are we going? You know, where are we right now? I think one of the first essays in the book, it's a dialogue um, with uh, the anarchists. And I say, you know, it's really a matter of when we are now, right? Historically, when we are, rather than where we are in terms of this or that locus of struggle, mm-hmm. this or that issue, you know, that's going to capture mm-hmm. our attention through through clickbait media exploitation, right? What we're right. supposed to care about. You know, that uh, people forget that the only reason why anything's on the Internet is to make a profit off you, to exploit you. To exploit yeah, you. I, 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 I want to tell you what I'm 
how, how I'm in receiving what you're saying, like what I'm thinking about. Like well, first, the first thing I thought about. Um, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna say it in reverse order because okay. uh, when I have started, you know, since I have started to really focus on trying to organize against the uh, international effort to combat disinformation, right, mm -hmm. as a way to overturn in the United States, um, a very uh, uh, strong um, and expansive. Uh, protection of speech through the first amendment i think it's uh, uh, you know probably the, the most protection any citizen in the world can uh any country yeah yeah uh is be, being right. an american citizen and and having first amendment protection um and trying to stand up as an american to protect that right um i don't have anything uh to offer a left that wants to ameliorate or mitigate immediate harm when i do that i i'm not saying if we stop the censorship of um you know the our, our our everyday discourse and the press that will mean we will uh slow down the war in ukraine or that that will mean when elon musk took over twitter because they were like how many people is this going to harm to remove the twitter controls Right. It was like that was the that was the discourse. The discourse was like, how how much immediate harm is this going to cause people? And it's like, you know, maybe possibly it's not like you can discount that a priori. I mean, it's a little bit paranoid. I mean, it's a, but, if you're you know, a, if, if you abide by, you know, Mill and Mill's mm -hmm. harm principle, then you just do discount that kind of doctrine. Not oh, sure. Right. Right. That's a different uh, way of evaluating it, though, isn't it? Like what they meant yeah. was, is this going to like cause an increase? I think our, our last video, there was some YouTube commentary back and forth between me and a viewer about like, you know, isn't censorship necessary? Isn't some reform of like communication policies necessary for something like harm reduction? You know, like harassment, right? Basically, like shouldn't there be rules against harassment? And it's like, well, harassment's already kind of a legal category. The state already has that. There's like cyber stalking and, you know, it's already illegal to do this and that, mm. you know, to dox people and whatever. And it's not like, you know, Twitter needs any special policies to deal with that. Right. Right. And so then it becomes this kind of like, you know, harming people in their heads or something like, you know, is it harmful for someone to read something or see something? Right. Or or something and it's like you know we talked about this last time it might be you know it might be i mean this is where i'm sympathetic to the snowflake criticism you know where i'm just like yeah you know like life's hard and traumatic and you got to deal with it and that's how you grow you know like you gotta you gotta hear things and read things and see things that are disturbing and that impact you uh, is, are they harming you i mean again I think that there is a sense of we are being exploited by the media. We are, we're being kind of manipulated. Like we're, we're being like activated, you know, like there is behavioral psychology that they're mm -hmm. using to like, you know, keep our attention and, and stoke our narcissism and, you know, this kind of stuff. I mean, that's probably harmful. That probably is harmful, but that's not what people mean. People don't mean, should I see all these ads for things that, like play on my neuroses and anxieties. They don't mean that. They don't mean stopping that because they know that that's 
not going to be stopped. Mm-hmm. They mean, you know, can people say things to each other in the public sphere? They don't mean can advertisers like, you know, work on my brain and drive me crazy. They don't mean that, right? Because mm-hmm. that's obviously far more harmful than anything that anyone might say. Anyone might tweet mm-hmm. or post to Facebook or anything else, right? right? And so these things get merged into a kind of paranoid sense of like, well, you got to start somewhere, you know, you got to fight what you can fight. And so the least that we can do is not have like, I don't know, right wingers or I don't know what turfs, you know, posting things that, that are, you know, denying my existence or something, you know, and it's kind of like, yeah, I mean, so it's, it's a lot of things are being, and it's clear that, you know, these social issues are being used to excuse corporate and state control. There's Combined. The, corporate yeah. and state control, not sometimes one and sometimes the other, right. but the combination of them. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, yeah. you know, they've been working together, you know, obviously for a long time. And, you know, you can say that, the, you know, corporations have always depended on the state. And the state is already uh, always dependent on corporations. The state has always outsourced functions. In our era, because of the discourse of like, I don't know, free market, kind of neoliberal, whatever, you know, mm-hmm. it adds a layer of like something to like the paranoid kind of character of it. Um, and the, what you were saying earlier, like when we were younger, the discourse was that of the 60s. And it was about like, I don't know, that the Vietnam War, I mean, the, do you remember this, Doug? The Vietnam War was conducted because Lady Bird Johnson, LBJ's wife, had a monetary interest in the helicopter manufacturing company. And then there were like other people, it's like DuPont, right? And like actual, like they actually did like protest corporations presence on campus, like the student movement because it's like they manufacture napalm. And so the idea is that, well, the US is fighting the war in Vietnam in order to buy helicopters and and Agent Orange and napalm. And it's like, that's not why the US is fighting in Vietnam. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, right. Come on, you know? Um, That's just not the reason. You know, does it grease the wheels? Does it does it affect policy in subtle ways? Sure, but the war is being fought for political reasons like you know, the reasons that they give you are the reasons, actually. Right. Right. They, they tell you why they're doing it. And it's kind of like you don't want to believe them because you're just like, wait, is that a sound rationale? The domino right. theory. And, you know, maybe. That, and so it's kind of, well, what's the real reason? And it's like, actually, <laughs> there is no like real reason that's not immediately apparent. I mean, I think things are somewhat uh, determined by. um like the problems that arise are determined by the economic system and the history of how that's been worked out. Yeah. Concretely. So, concretely. Yeah. yeah. So then you, you, you're, you're a politician and you have to decide how do I like, for instance, um, th- this yeah. war on disinformation, the uh, society is not functioning well. There was a massive economic crisis. There's a lot of social crises and cultural crises. Um, there was a populist uprising that actually put a candidate forward that none of us wanted, who got elected anyway. Um, uh, he is, uh, you know, an off-the-cuff uh, kind of barbarian 
Um, and so obviously this kind of political organizing has to be stopped. Look at QAnon. Um, and so then you have a, a set of options in front of you. You might have the libertarian option, which would be what we need is to break up the monopoly power and, and unleash free, free competition in the market. And or you might have the progressive left uh, position, which is, oh, well, we need to regulate and control disinformation and remove bad actors from the stage, deplatforming, but but done by the state. Um, and there are other possible political responses that you can have. Uh, like, but by and large, there's sort of a limited array and it's, uh, you know, to try to address a problem that if you can't get to the roots of it, you're, you're, you're just going to go through the menu again. And we're again. in a position, right. Of basically watching the train wreck in slow motion, meaning mm -hmm. we're sort of condemned to the role of being, uh, observers, spectators to the catastrophe. And, you know, of course, we might feel like, okay, we'd like one thing to happen rather than another thing ha to happen. But really, we're sort of a captive audience to this disaster. And I think that that really the left, right, mm -hmm. or those of us, you know, um, and, you know, even intellectuals who are closer to the corridors of power, can instantly find themselves on the outside, can sort of instantly find themselves in a position of being an observer of the tra train wreck, right? And be feel kind of helpless about uh, what's going on and about what's going wrong. And I think that that, you know, at a basic level, we have to remind ourselves that our feelings don't affect anything, right? Um, and so it's kind of like, you know, again, the very hard thing that I had to do around Trump, and I talk about it in the preface to my book, mm -hmm. right, um, is that I'm just like, okay, I can't stop this from happening. So what am I going to do? Mm -hmm. Right? How am I going to deal with this? And, you know, I can contort myself one way or I can contort myself another way. And what are my purposes? You know, what's the point, right? And, you know, it's it's very tricky, I think, because I think that, you know, like talking about something and and sort of trying to normalize it, because remember how much it was, don't normalize Trump. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, actually, you have to normalize it because you have to be non-hysterical about it. And you have to sort of see it within a larger context. And even though it's shocking to people, I mean, people care about various things. And like industry insiders obviously care about very minimal things. You know, it's basically a taste community for them. And so, you know, the sort of media political complex, we might say, mm -hmm. can feel very strongly about things that from a socialist perspective are not really any differences at all but they can feel like everything hinges on this, right? Mm -hmm. um, everything hinges on the particular red that's used in a Coca-Cola billboard <laughs> advertisement, you know? Like, people care about these things. They're like, no, you got to use this red and not that red. Mm -hmm. It's like that, you know? Mm -hmm. And I feel like 
Trump, you know, it's just whatever. And I think we've talked about this before, you know, I'm from New York. And so I'm like, holy shit, is this possible? You know, so I knew I, I was familiar with Trump as like a, a figure before he became like the reality TV star, or The Apprentice, which I didn't really watch because who cares mm-hmm. about people who want to be, I don't know, corporate toadies. I mean, what is that show yeah. about? Do you know, like, I mean, it's like, you know, and, uh, and, and, you know, so I just was like, okay, well, what, you know, and then it's like, okay, this is happening. And so what am I going to do about it? And what do I need? Like getting down to basics, you know, cause mm-hmm. I remembered like, oh, Ronald Reagan is like a B movie star, you know, and the fact that he's like a superficial kind of guy lent a kind of sinister character to the whole thing. And I'm like, okay, they're going to kind of do that. And, and he is this loudmouth, like, whatever, who's said various things that are racist and sexist and whatever. Um, he seems to have been pretty gentle on the gays over the years. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so not so much a homophobe, although he was willing to pander to the, to the you know, Christian right. Yeah. And, you know, whether the Christian right are particularly homophobic is another question. There are probably worse homophobes in the world than Christians. Like, you know, than believers, you know, they're probably like secular atheist homophobes who are worse than the Christians, you know, who (laughs) love the sinner and hate the sin, at least. Right. You know, whereas I feel like a kind of science person who's homophobic just wants to, like, you know, kill you. Like, you know, like, it's like, this is just a little bit of psychosurgery. You'll be fine, Chris. Exactly. Right. You know, like, (laughs) exactly. Right. It's like an evolutionary disadvantage that needs to be corrected. Mm. Um, so yeah, exactly. So, you know, I just felt like, okay, okay, what are we going to do? And I was, you know, very, in a sense, cautious and careful about what I said and what I didn't say about Trump, because I was like aware of like, okay, I'm not going to get into the weeds on this or that, but it it sort of stands like, it's pretty good after all these years by why not Trump? You know, I kind of talked about mendacity of the status quo and Trump's lies are instructive because they tell the truth about ideology in a way that the lies of the status quo kind of confuse you and, you know, render things very murky. And that really there's that we're, we're finding ourselves in a remarkable position that maybe has been there for a long time, but is graphically illustrated now of very little tolerance for any kind of change, even rhetorical change. There's like very it's like a brittle environment Mm -hmm. where you know it's like discursive norms have to be preserved because it will cause like like devastating harm to like talk the wrong way i mean that's like pretty sinister right Mm -hmm. and you know and the russia thing you know the russia whole thing you know like i was like okay let's say that trump really does want to be friendly with russia which is not particularly clear Right. Mm-hmm. It's because of with him, it's all triangulation. It's all Kissinger, Nixon type triangulation. And so it's about being friends with everybody and being enemies to everybody. And and I'm like, OK, let's say that he wants to be friends with Russia. You know, I don't you know, it's not like I'd like Putin or Russia. I mean, I think they play a pretty nefarious role in various things in the world. Um, but it's like, you know, is that the worst thing in the world? You know, no. And it's got, you know, and I just sort of like said, oh, okay, you know, what kind of change does Trump represent? He doesn't really represent much of a change. He's not even calling for much of a change. It's more of a rhetorical change. And, 
and you know maybe one thing that might be a change is just a shift in foreign policy which isn't even really because they did the reset button with obama didn't hillary go and say let's hit the reset button with russia mm -hmm. did she bring a red button and said let's hit the reset i don't button? i don't remember that but that sounds uh that sounds right i know yeah. that obama was softer on russia than most of of his critics wanted him to be yeah putting within the democratic party of course yeah right um and so being relatively friendly to russia was not a huge change from the obama administration uh if it had been able to be maintained but it was not really trump ended up arming ukraine yeah um, i mean in other words they they play sides and then, of course, everything is exaggerated. And then they claim, I mean, obviously, the Republicans and the Democrats accuse each other of things that are just completely not true and kind of absurd, absurdly exaggerated and rhetorical. At the same time, you know, there are these differences that are articulated, but in such a way that is, you know, you can mistake rhetoric for substance. Well, one of the you said just a moment ago that I want to go back to because it's, you know, on my mind. Mm -hmm. uh, lately, is that you pointed out how the left did not want to normalize yes. Trump. And what that meant was not treating him as a political enemy. An ordinary capitalist politician. Right. But as some sort of emergency, which what that set up was a left that was more than willing, I guess, to go along with the state using its emergency powers granted to it through the To go after terror. Trump to go after Trump. I remember yeah. there was a platypus member who got very angry at me when I said, you know, Trump's right. They wiretapped, they wiretapped Trump tower, you know, Obama wiretapped Trump in during the election. He's like, you know, Trump is right. And they got very angry at me. Like, how dare you repeat Trump's lies? And then of course it's true. And I was just like, yeah, but you know, you can see it. You can already see it. You can, you can see just, in the way that Obama and Clinton were talking about it, and even in what you know Trump was saying, and even like the Carter Page stuff, and then the prosecution of Flynn and Manafort, they you know, wiretapped you, Angela Merkel too. I mean, we oh you well, know. of course they did, right? Right, <laughs> well, right. And and you know, and people have been wiretapping. I mean, LBJ wiretapped Nixon, right? And um, you know, uh, and knew that Nixon was telling the South Vietnamese not to make a peace deal. Mm -hmm. Right. And like serious stuff. And and uh, I I think that the Carter administration knew that Reagan was doing the stuff with Iran, saying mm -hmm. don't release the hostages. Right. So they were obviously surveilling Reagan and they just do. They just do. Right. And so they do. And so it's kind of like, uh, you know, but again, the accusation was such that what what it did was if you made that accusation, you were basically saying that the exercise of power was illegitimate. And that's what can't be, that's what people can't tolerate. They can't tolerate that. And it's like, well, I mean, it's legitimate. Wait, but they can tolerate else, it if, if, but it's if a Republican right. is in, in power. Right, right, that. exactly. Then they can say it's illegitimate use of power. If it's a Democrat, then you can't say that. And it's like, but from a socialist perspective, it's all more or less legitimate and illegitimate. Meaning it's legitimate. This is the way the capitalist world works. Yes. It's illegitimate. Do we want to accept that? No. Right. <laughs> right. And not just accept it in terms of like, you know, at a moral ethical level, but, you know, that 
socialism will mean doing something very different. It won't mean doing the same thing, but with different policy goals. Right. But that's what socialism means now. Right. And that's right. what the whole DSA turn has done. It's turned it into, well, which policies do you support? You know, mm -hmm. it's like, um, I think that in the, in the, in the YouTube comment back and forth that I had on our last video, it was like, well, Engels supported the eight hour day. And it's like, yeah. And Marx and the, and Marx and Engels in the communist manifesto supported progressive taxation. Does that mean that progressive taxation is communist? Does that mean that the eight hour day is socialist? No, it does not mean that, Do you know, but that's what socialism comes to mean. It's like, and then, and then people scour Marx and Engels' writings or Lenin's writings or whoever's writings, and they look for some like endorsement or affirmation of some like capitalist policy. And they're like, see, that's like on our side. See, Marx says so. And it's like, God damn, like that's not what we're doing here. That's not the point, mm -hmm. right? The point is to move the world to such a place where we don't need... <laughs> A national security state right i mean i was there was another inst instance i was reading i'm trying to remember what the exact reference is but it was something like oh it's i don't know if it's gabriel rockhill it's one of these characters right mm -hmm. and it's like um well you know cuba needs police right like a socialist state needs police and it's like okay but maybe that's an index of it not being a socialist state. Yeah. Right? Like, you know what I mean? Like, in other words, it's kind of like, all right. Yeah. Like maybe the dictatorship of the proletariat, you'll need police for a little while or something. Yeah. Democratize the police. But like, you can't say, oh, well, socialist countries, you know what it was? It was even worse than that. It was Cedric Johnson. It was Cedric mm -hmm. Johnson. He was saying, you can't call for defunding the police or abolishing the police because look, even a socialist country needs police like Cuba. And I was like, holy shit, no, please don't, please don't, you know? <laughs> right. And that, I mean, that's a perfect example of how like supporting Stalinism does lead you back to the Democrats or does lead right. you back to capitalist politics. Well, right? I mean, and it's like, but we're trying to move society. In other words, Cuba. Okay. Cuba. All right. Right. Or like, does China. that really, are we really trying to tell the American public, uh, people, working class people in America, that what we're for is turning the United States into Cuba? Is well, that what we're saying? <laughs> you know? Right. Doug, I know. We're way down this rabbit hole. And, and like I said, you know, Cedric Johnson's a nice guy. I mean, saying we support Cuban struggle, yeah. Cuban struggle, that's one thing. Or to say, we they define the, what right. a socialist country is. Right. They define what socialism is. That's something completely different. That's a major concession. Yeah, exactly. You could say, well, it's not a socialist country. And you could also say the U.S. shouldn't be constantly attacking it. Right. And there maybe is a struggle for socialism there yeah. that's ahead of our own. I'll even grant that. Right. Maybe. But I'm just in but certain respects. Say, right. Right. But I'm not going to say, oh, yeah, we want the whole world to be run like Cuba. And, you know, and well, we is, want a socialist police. That's what we really want. Yeah, And we want a socialist police and we want one man in power for his whole life. And we want, you well, know, there's that, <laughs> but, you know, but just, you know, cause I feel like it's like you wave a magic wand or something. It's like, again, what we were talking about just a moment ago, the Republicans are in the state is bad. The Republicans are out. The Democrats are in the state is good. And it's like, well, wait, 
you know, the basic function doesn't change. And even the policies don't really change very much. I mean, maybe the targets change, but not really. Not not terribly much, you know? I, 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 I know I'm being a little uh, too focused on one thing here, maybe. But I have noticed that if you talk about how the American state's policies are are, are Orwellian now, mm-hmm. that that is Makes you a right-winger. A right-wing critique to point to Orwell. Sure, because um, Orwell, we know, was already appropriated in the Cold War to be an anti-communist, even though he wasn't, or he was, but he wasn't. He's an he was an anti-Stalinist, certainly. Yeah. And maybe his politics weren't, you know, sound. And all of the decisions, yeah, you yeah. know, weren't perfect. But the but you know, Orwell's 1984 is a critique of totalitarian state power. It's not a. It's not. Right. A, you know? Right. It's exactly, exactly. And, you know, that's why, you know, I think that in one of my pieces I talk about um, in the book, I talk about how it's more like Brave New World than it is like 1984, the totalitarianism that we face now. And, um, you know, in other words, that's that's actually a more accurate prognosis, mm-hmm. you know, um, is that everybody's going to be psychopharmacalized, you know, into submission and you know no one's going to want to have sex and that's how everything will be nice <laughs> yeah but there is double think today. well there is no no the orwell the orwell stuff is still there of course it's still there it is very much there but i feel like they don't even want to bother with double think right because double think means that you're thinking they don't want you to be thinking <laughs> yeah, right? right in other words it's like it's not like thinking and therefore double think is necessary to combat thinking. It's like, actually, the ideal situation is don't think, just obey. And again, this is going to sound like really, you know, far-fetched or something, but, you know, we just went through the COVID thing. And we've obviously gone through the Trump thing. And you're just not supposed to think certain things. You're just not supposed to. You're not supposed to question. If you question it, what's wrong with you? If you think it, what the fuck is wrong with you? Right. Yeah, it, the idea that being skeptical about whether or not the vaccine was going to be efficacious made you right-wing. Within um, Platypus, I was very unpopular. I'll just say this. Within Platypus, I was very unpopular. about Within the, your own? Yes. Marxist organization. Yes. <laughs> because I said, you know, the same people who brought us the war on terror and the, you know, all the horrible policies coming out of the Great Recession we're going to trust those same people to deal with the pandemic. Mm. And what did people say to that? They were like, Oh no, it's totally different. I mean, it really was like, what Chris, you want people to die? I mean, they went there. They did. Of course they Mm. did. And I was like, no, but just remember this is capitalism still. Right. Meaning it's not like the question of capitalism is suspended just because there's a pandemic. Yeah. Right. It's not right. And that doesn't mean it's like all bad or something, but it does mean, you know, in other words, like this bullshit medication produced by some state sponsored farm pharmaceutical industry, because I think Moderna was even set up by the government. Right. Right. And like, you know, but obviously Pfizer wouldn't exist without all sorts of government contracts. And, you know, that might be the best tool that we have to deal with this virus, but it's a shitty tool. And one of the reasons why it's a shitty tool is yes, because capitalism. (laughs) <laughs> Do you know, like, fuck, you know, and again, like it, it turns you into a hippie to remember that like Marxists used to critique 
how capitalism affects science. Mark, this used to be very basic Marxism, that capitalism distorts and holds back and only gives us a very limited and deformed version of science. Mm-hmm. Right? That capitalism is a limitation on science because it's a limitation on the social conditions in which science can be practiced generally. But then if you add like the political layer and the fact that they were using it to get rid of Trump, because they were. Right. Yeah. Right. And yeah. I mean, I remember Kamala Harris saying because Trump produced the vaccine, she wouldn't trust it. Right. And then immediately after she's in office, then it's like, you have to take the vaccine. And I, for, if God help me, I'm sorry, forgive me, Doug, but I remember Noam Chomsky and Michael Albert talking with you mm-hmm. on a podcast about how you should restrain your child to force to, to force them to take the vaccine. And they said that very like blase, like, because you were saying that he was, your son, I think, was having like a, a kind yeah, of... Yeah, he was phobic to needles. Phobic to needles. And they were like, well, can't you like restrain him and do it anyway? And I was just like, do you know and, what I mean? And yeah, I, right. No, and I, and I, you know what? Yeah, I know. And he's I was like, anarchists. I know. And I, I was like, well, in fact, no, <laughs> he's too big for me to restrain. And the, the, the hospital won't do that. Even no, they're not they going to knock you out to give you a vaccine. Of course not. Cause the risk right. of being knocked out is much greater than right. I mean, the risk of, you know, being, being a, 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 anesthetized is like a serious thing. And so, right. no, and, but you know, the, 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 you know, our anarchists. Well, look, I chalk right? that up to them both being old men and being afraid of the, of the vaccine. No, it's also the, because uh, they're fucking Democrats. It is because they're okay. Democrats. It really is. It's because they, their anarchism only goes so far. In other words, they do think, you know, I mean, it's hard not to think, right? And again, it sounds like you're going into hippie land. You're going into some antinomian counterculture land, you know, or like some caricature of Marcuse or something, mm-hmm. you know, to just be like, actually, it's all fucking rotten, you know? In other words, like, yeah, they're poisoning us all the time. They're poisoning our water, our air, our food. I mean, they are, right? They, they certainly are. It's like RFK Jr., right, is running for, mm-hmm. for president. And mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken, you know, see, so he's like a vaccine guy anti-vaxxer whatever right Mm -hmm. but i think he actually achieved a concrete goal which was to remove a preservative that they used to put in vaccines and that they no longer do Uh uh-huh right that was actually harming people right right and it's like okay and what that's not a a good reform that he achieved on the big you know because i was watching some cnn thing where it's like oh well he gets his his craziness He's, he's able to sell his craziness because of his name recognition and, uh, you know, because of his last name. And I'm like, but it hasn't all been crazy. Like he actually did achieve a worthwhile reform, which is to get these companies to remove a preservative, which meant that they have to spend more money on other things. You know, something mm-hmm. that was harm, harming people in the vaccine that they otherwise would keep in there. And, you know, you know at, at one point during the... Bad? Yeah, no, I know. At one point during the the pandemic, Jimmy Dore and a few other people, uh, and probably some articles were written, but uh, I saw Jimmy Dore talk about, and and another YouTuber who's a a nurse practitioner and talked about COVID a lot, talk about how 
uh, when you're getting the vaccine in the United States, they don't give you the shot in the right way. There's some they, they should like uh, make sure they're not going to hit. Oh yeah, uh, a vein, a blood vessel. Right, because right. And they, getting... and so they should pull back on the needle yes. to see if there's blood in there. If there make is, they sure should do it's it again. Intramuscular. Yeah. Right. So you shouldn't get your shot from a from a National Guard person as a, at a stadium. You right. should get it from like an actual someone who's regularly giving people shots who knows how to do it because actually you'll have a much worse reaction if it goes directly into your bloodstream. Yeah, there's just yeah. things that you don't want to have happen if it goes into your bloodstream. Yes, there could be much more severe side effects that way. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. and basic stuff that that was not taken up by the mainstream media, and it was well, because they didn't want anyone. Right -wing. They yeah, it turns into a right wing talking point because they don't want. They just wanted millions of people to get shots as quickly as possible. However, and which way it is, whether it's in the eye it or up their butt, it doesn't matter. They have to get the shots and just don't think about it. Do as we say, as you and say. And that's right? the reason why they didn't let people who had already been infected avoid getting the vaccine, which European countries did let people use natural immunity. But in the United States, they're like, yeah, we don't want to deal with that. We just want as many people to get the shot as possible. We don't want to like adjudicate who's been sick and who hasn't you know, who's legitimately, right? Yeah, it'll be an extra expense to, to create these tests to see if you've been infected. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, certainly the antibody tests were expensive. That's right. Right. Yeah, the antibody tests are more expensive than the antigen tests. And, you know, it's just kind of like, well, at a certain level, you just got to trust people to just, you know, decide to get the shot or not. Fuck it. You know, because, especially because they knew that the shot was not going to stop the pandemic, that it was only going to decrease hospitalization. Which is, of course, a good thing, meaning like if I can avoid going to the hospital, that's great. And it's not yeah. like, oh, yeah, fuck you. I'm going to be hospitalized and make make the public <laughs> eat the expense. Of course, right. you don't want to be hospitalized. Right. Right. And so, you know, but really, that was the bottom line. The bottom line was don't overwhelm the hospitals. That was always the bottom line. And it's like. But I even there, Chris, it turns out looking back, if you were under 30. Right. Anyway. Right. Right. It didn't really even do that. And the there's a I don't know the for a fact what it that's it, right. It, it's like neck and neck as to whether the side effects or the COVID or was was more likely. Yeah, to I mean, you know, you. but anyway, they shouldn't have mandated it in the way that they did. And yeah. you know, and also I just think as a public health thing, it, they just didn't take into account psychology. Do you know, in other words, like it's like if you really wanted people to do one thing rather than another thing, don't lie to them. Don't scare them to death. Don't threaten them. Don't try to coerce them because you probably it's going to be counterproductive. Call upon their patriotism. Yeah. Do something or just say, you know what? Yeah. It's an experimental vac vaccine and we don't really know. And, you know, but it's the best. Thing We're really we pretty sure it will stop you from going yeah. to the hospital. And if you remember, the idea here is to flatten the curve so that we don't overwhelm our medical system. So if you're over 40, you know, definitely go get it. If you have any feeling that you're, you're susceptible, go get it. Uh, it's, we're really sure that it's not going to be uh, that bad for the majority of people in terms of side effects. And it's worth the risk because you're helping everybody by doing right. it. something like and that. So, but again, like, it's like, I think that, I think that really what I was, what I was, what was revealed to me in the COVID mm -hmm. experience was just how authoritarian people are. 
And by authoritarian, I mean not just trusting authority. I mean conformist, like really, you know, just like witch burning, you know, like of any dissent, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, obviously I'm in a blue state. I'm in in Chicago. I'm in a major Democrat city. And so, of course, it was a different environment. Probably, you know, there are other issues with being in a red state or something or being Mm -hmm. a Republican kind of stronghold. But, you know, I just feel like, and you know, what's interesting now about Trump, I'll just say this. It might be in an article that I will write on why not Trump again. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Again, why not Trump? Um, is that, you know, Trump, it's very interesting. He's criticizing DeSantis for being too lax on COVID. I don't know mm-hmm. if you caught that. Yeah, He's, I did. So the Republicans are complaining that Trump is running to the left of DeSantis. <laughs> More authoritarian. Um, on you that know, front. That, well, because he's also criticizing DeSantis for going after Disney. Right. Because, you know, DeSantis probably is anti-LGBTQ. I mean, a lot of the Republicans are in a way that Trump is not. Mm -hmm. And but just on a host of issues like, you know, Trump is more moderate than the rest of the Republican field again, like before. And last time they said the Republicans complained that he was a Democrat who was trying to do a hostile takeover of the Republican Party, which is true. Mm -hmm. And but the Democrats have to say and the left is, of course, willing to say this because they're, you know, willing to be the shock troops and the credulous true believers that Trump is the most right wing of the Republicans. And it's like, no. And actually, that's why he's a threat to the Democrats, because he is running to the center. He is competing for the moderate electorate. And so he is going to say, you know, actually, I mean, he, I think he actually has said New York State did better than Florida on COVID. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of like, you know, and again, the Fox News people are like flabbergasted. They're like, how could he say that? Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but again, so it's it's one of these things where I feel like that makes Trump worse for the Democrats. Also at a rhetorical level, because they see something sinister in that. You know, in other words, they just want everything to be siloed in recognizable form and they want to divide the electorate like okay the republicans are these libertarian yahoos and the democrats are these responsible you know social justice harm reduction people right the republicans are willing to let people die in the name of freedom the democrats are willing to curtail freedom to keep people safe mm-hmm. right this and he doesn't really fit that and that's going to make things more hysteric, I think, around him, you know. Um, and I just feel like, can we just think clearly uh, away from this partisan manipulation and, and, and scaremongering and whatnot? Um, and that's been my mission all along, you know, with Trump. Because, you know, again, it's kind of like, did I want Trump to happen? Not really. Did I welcome it? Not particularly, but it's kind of like, it's, it's, I can't do anything about it. I can't avoid it. And so what am I going to do now? And am I really going to just hang up my hat? Am I going to say, okay, the millennial left, they kind of toyed with Marxism for a few years, but now they're going to check out. 
because of Trump. And I just have to accept that. And I have to kind of go along with it. I have to say, yes, look at how regressive Trump is on this and that. Look, he's right wing Supreme Court justices, you know, threat to our freedoms, threat to whatever. And, you know, biggest corporate tax break in history and, you know, just everything. Right. That happens every like every president comes in and gives another bigger corporate tax cut. I mean, Bill maybe Clinton, Obama didn't. I guess Obama didn't do it. Didn't, did he not? OK, no, he did. He he made it permanent. Oh, he, he did. There was something around. It was some compromise at the Tea Party, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. He made perfect tax cuts permanent. Permanent. That's right. And in a debt ceiling. In a debt uh, ceiling deal. Right. Right. And, um, and, but again, I'm like, you know, I, I just want to re recall. Can we just recall? <laughs> Socialists used to be against taxes. Right. Yeah. Socialists are against taxes. I hate children. I hate to tell you, Marxists mm -hmm. are against taxes. Right. In other words, when Marx is talking about a progressive taxation, he's talking about after the revolution. Right. And and and, right. and and that's like part of like a critique in the critique of the Gotha program when he starts talking that way. He's not even being prescriptive. He's he's pointing out the limits of the Gotha program. Yeah. And what would have to be what yeah. they would really mean. And he's not being prescriptive. Because you know, it's not like Marxists think that the Republicans are lying. When the Republicans say well, you know, the rich people never pay taxes anyway, not only because of loopholes, but because they always, whatever taxes they're paying, they pass on that cost to the consumers and the workers. Right. Of course, that's true. Right. So right. it's not like so, that it's an illusion that you're taxing the rich in order to benefit the poor. It's an illusion. The Republicans are completely correct about that. It's a total illusion. And, you know, but it's also, you know, just in class terms, Socialists have to be against every tax that the workers pay, and that consumers pay, like everything. Sales tax is bad, you know. Even like property tax on your domicile is bad, and you know, taxing small businesses is bad. It is, and the income tax is horrible. Income tax is horrible. You know, when you when you right. okay, I'm going to ask you a question about taxation as a nerd, nerdy old climateite. Okay, mm -hmm. um, when corporations pay taxes not individual rich people mm -hmm, but corporations mm -hmm. that is the corporations turning over to the state uh, yes. uh some of the surplus right yes and they can't use that to reinvest in production right. and they can't use that to pay their workers or themselves and then the, right. the state redistributes the surplus theoretically sometimes to working people in the they don't really what they do is they provide the infrastructure that the corporations can't fund themselves that's what they're really doing Right. In other words, the corporations, you know, want to have like a different body, like pay for the military and the police, because those are the things that really matter. Well, Including, social security. Oh, matters. well, that stuff. Yeah, sure. Although that's like highly regressive. I was trying to explain to my partner, who's a new American citizen mm -hmm. about like, you know, he's like, oh, so social security is based on your income level before you retire. And I'm like, yes. Right. In other words, like rich people get more from Social Security than poor people get from Social Security. And that was like a shock to him. And yeah. I was like, yeah, it's Social Security, meaning it's supposed to help preserve your place. Right. Uh huh. It's not supposed, you know what I mean? So you lived in poverty your whole life and you'll continue. You're going to stay in so. poverty. Yeah. <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, just trying to explain that. And, you know, so 
I mean, taxation at that level, at the level of, I mean, again, from a Marxist perspective, it's also total capital. And then what you'll have is like someone like Adolf Reed, my old mentor, will talk about like the social wage, right? Meaning like not only the stuff you're, you're paid, like not only what you're paid by your employer, but also the general social benefits, you know, like public schools. You know, there's like a social wage, right? And that what, what, what the left should want is an increase in the social wage and what the right wants is to con constantly cut the social wage. And it's like, mm, no, right? Because that's a massive concession to like Keynesianism and Fordism. And the problem there is that it sort of sets you up. And then it becomes, well, what is the social wage? And how are we adjudicating that? Because then we're also supposed to follow down the rabbit hole. We're supposed to say, no, parents shouldn't get a voucher from their own taxes to pay for the school of their choice for their children, because somehow that's taking away from the social wage. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, they've paid the taxes and then the state's giving it back to them to pay for a school, like a charter school. And that's a net decrease for the social wage. How does that work? And then it becomes, oh, well, it's because the teachers in a private school are not unionized versus the teachers in the public school are unionized. And that's supposed to be a factor in the social wage. Well, so why not just organize, the, 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 organize, exactly. the organize the teachers in the private schools and also <laughs> don't don't assume that the public sector unions are somehow a socialist constituency. Yeah, because they're not. Right. And, um, you know, so again, there's this. Oh, yeah. Well, they are. If you define right. socialism as Keynesian statism. Right. <laughs> and then the right is there to say, no, it's just a racket. It's just crony capitalism. It's just vested interests. Right. And, and of course, the right is correct about yeah. that. In other words, that this is not really socialism. I mean, in other words, the right would say this is not what Marxists... Well, the right says this, that the Keynesian, you know, statism is socialism, and that's ever, all it ever has been and ever could be. But it's, right? it, for them, it's the only thing that socialism could be. Mm -hmm. But they all, all are also aware of the fact that that's not what Marxism wanted. Right. Right. In Some other words, for them, I mean, socialism... I don't know. Well, for them, socialism is just unfree capitalism. Right. Right? Yeah. And so and I, okay. they're like, this is not what Marx wanted. Well, what Marx wanted is not possible anyway. And so that all you have is relatively free capitalism versus unfree capitalism. That's basically, and then they call unfree capitalism socialism. Mm -hmm. And we, Marxists, should say they're right, that what people call socialism is just unfree capitalism. Yeah, I agree. This is something that um, I've been running up against when it comes to this issue of free speech. Maybe we can stop here and 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 pick it up on the, like how it could be that the free market, the idea of the free market, is not to be just completely overthrown or or rejected out of hand by Marxists. It's not like that's the end uh, or the rising of meaning. Well, the other thing is that you never get rid of the free market anyway. In other words, even in the Soviet Union, there was a mm -hmm. black market. Oh, right. A huge black market. Yeah. A major black market. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you don't get rid of it anyway. You don't. So this whole thing, it's all, like I said, it's all set up. Right. So the right wing says that they're free marketers and then the left are like, oh, we're against the free market. It's like, have you thought about it? Like, what are you talking about? 
right? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, the other thing that I like to point out, socialists were against minimum wage laws historically. Why? Mm -hmm. Because they, well, they recognize uh, minimum well, wage. Can I give a guess? Can I give a guess? <laughs> all right. Because, um, well, first of all, it, it put forward the idea that there was such a thing as a fair day's wage for a fair day's work. So and and because in fact the right is correct when they critique uh, minimum wage laws because the wages as a number are kind of only meaningful in relationship to the other the whole body of commodities. Yes, yes. And yes. and so you're not actually going to be in any long-term way going to be uplifting anyone up that you may cause inflation, you could cause capital flight, but you're not actually changing the conditions of work that the minimum people. wage is more of a wage ceiling than it's a wage floor oh say more well that it actually it, it actually artificially suppresses wages it doesn't art it, it it can look like it artificially inflates wages and certainly there's that criticism and that's partially true but it's it's actually more true that what it does is that it sets a wage ceiling so it actually minimum wage laws tend to suppress wages Okay, but I need to understand. I don't see how that happens. Can you? So in Germany, it? in Germany, there is no minimum wage. Mm. There is none, and the socialists right. have been against it, and the right has tried to implement it, and yet Germany has among the highest wages in the world. But what what is it about the minimum having setting a minimum for wages that would, uh, in a, in a you know dialectical way? lead capitalists to um it means that they don't have a, to compete for workers by paying higher wages because the workers are why well, no because there's a minimum because there's a, a kind of an agreed upon you know so like who who earns a minimum wage like service sector workers service, retail right young people mm -hmm. of course mm -hmm. like mcdonald's workers right mm -hmm. And so uh, that, uh, waiters, um, they get tips to offset the. They get uh, they get an even lower minimum wage, so you know right. that the minimum wage for them is even lower because they're expected to get tips. So that's right. even worse, right? Right. Well, let's say the people who actually get the minimum wage, as opposed to the suppressed minimum wage of of, of waiters, mm -hmm. um, and you know there have always been a tiered. There's always been a tiered workforce. Um, there's always been illegal labor, but in the United States, obviously, illegal labor is a much higher component than in Germany, let's say. Although in Germany, mm -hmm. in the last 50 years, it's actually grown a great deal. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, Germany is not what it once was, right? So there's, you know, they, they take advantage of young people and also immigrants, and, you know, they, they illegally suppress wages in ways that they can kind of get away with, just like here, except it's on a bigger scale here, and there are regional disparities in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, but... It basically says that this is an agreed upon maximum for workers of a certain level, and then that, that oh impacts, okay, and that so, that impacts the rest of the labor market accordingly, right? right. Because, uh, yeah. So okay. So like, if I'm a um, uh, McDonald's, uh, you know, McDonald's has to pay all its workers behind the counter or in the yep. kitchen minimum yep. wage. Yep. So that becomes the most anyone in that kind of field industry yeah, in any will be right, paid exactly. unless right. they get a promotion or something like that. Right. And so that sets a ceiling for an entry level yes. position in that sector. 
Right. So that means that the, you know, if I'm at uh, Burgerville, right. I won't, I won't pay Burn more, more. Right, right. for these people because, um, yeah, okay. Because that sets some sort of, it's not a formal, it, there's no, there's nothing limiting me by law from paying no, more. No, no. But it is de facto, and it's also understood that way, by the way. Yeah. So it's like, yeah. you know, it's industry standards, you know, and it, it's part of the cartelization of the economy, mm -hmm. you know, uh, or monopoly capital, you know. So like very old ideas, you know, that are can be problematic. But I, I use the definitions from longer ago. So when I say monopoly capital, I do not mean Brown and Sweezy because they're crazy Stalinists. And mm -hmm. of course, they're precisely fudging the old Marxist idea of monopoly capital. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, I mean, there's a there's a reason to my madness, we might say which is to say that I do want to wrest all of these categories away from the pseudo-Marxism of the last hundred years. Mm -hmm. You know, since Marxists have started fudging things basically in the Great Depression era, in the Stalinist era, but in the mm -hmm. FDR era, in the Popular Front era, in the New Deal era, they've fudged. And I'm, I'm interested in what was meant before that fudging started to happen, mm -hmm. because that fudging has been extremely uh, obfuscating and has really confused things. There are many like category errors involved. You know, so I, I mentioned like Adolf Reed will use something like the social wage as a concept. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this is not, you know? And yes, you could say, oh, well, capitalism has changed since Marx's time or since Rosa Luxemburg's time or since Lenin's time. Sure, but maybe not so much as to justify this kind of conceptual slippage and fudging. Right. Yeah, yeah, I right. totally agree with you there, um, but uh, you know, yeah. Well, we well, let's continue on in the um, in the uh, parrot room. I'll send you another link in just a few minutes. But okay. um, that this was a great first half, and I hope everyone appreciates the new Catron Zone. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons help to make sure that Sublation Media can continue to provide interviews, videos, books, and articles that are critical of the left from the left. If you are tired of remaining stuck within bourgeois ideologies and politics, help us sublate them both.